When I was in middle school, my dad took me to a haunted house alternative called Judgment House. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these, but uh, it was kind of this, this play or this scenario where it was a high school basketball team and some of them would drink and party and some of them would go to youth group and Bible study. And then on the way to the basketball game, their bus, their bus crashes and some of the students went to heaven and some went to hell. And so you went through these different rooms kind of depicting all these scenes. And the room that represented heaven was bright and pleasant and lovely. And then when you went to hell, obviously it was not pleasant. It was dark and they had the heat up, which I thought was a nice touch. And, you know, the, the person playing Satan had a voice modulator and like these glowing contacts, I remember. Uh, but for 13-year-old Adam, the scariest part was afterwards, you were led to a room and, and someone sat you down in a chair and talked to you about whether or not you knew you were saved. And it, was a, it, was almost, it almost felt like an interrogation to me. Uh, and, and I remember just kind of pleading with them, like, look, like, look, I'm a Christian. And then I finally I played the card. My dad's a pastor. You're like, I just want to leave, right? And, and, and so that whole experience uh, was terrible. And that night, I pledged to myself that I would never try to scare anybody to Jesus, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, or maybe you've been driving down I-70 and encountered a sign like this, a, bill, uh, a billboard, or maybe you've, you've had uh, somebody shout at you with a bullhorn on the street corner, but I imagine you've seen signs along the highway like this one. Man, I'd love to know if there's any, anybody in human history that's been driving along, seen a sign like this, and be like, heaven and hell, huh, I should look into that. Right, like I just, I just want to know. Some, somebody tell me, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm with John Mayer, who, who had a lyric in his song, is there anyone ever who's changed their mind from the paint on a sign? Now, I don't typically make a habit of criticizing other churches or methods. Uh, there's, there's plenty of better ways to use your, your energy and, and your time. Uh, and I'm also mindful of something my dad said to me often, which I hated, because it was true, which was this. Well, Adam, their way of doing it is better than your way of not doing it. Things like Judgment House and, and billboards uh, represent what some might call like, like a confrontational style of evangelism or, or sharing your faith, a confrontational approach to God, while others might prefer a less direct or, or more, a more relational approach to sharing their faith. Uh, and, and, and how they conceive of God and how God operates. Christians through time have had different conceptions of this. What's the best way for someone to, to get to know God or what's the best way to introduce someone to the faith? How does God operate? How can we help others know God? There, there's a lot of different thoughts on how we should do this. And that's okay because there's lots of different types of people. Different people tend to emphasize different things about God. I have found that most theology, theology being things we think about God, the way we conceive of God, I have found that most theology is a matter of emphasis. Here's what I mean. I told you a minute ago, I didn't want to scare anybody to Jesus. But one of Methodism's, uh, Methodism's founder, John Wesley, one of his favorite verses to quote was Proverbs 9.10, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture tells us that fearing God is better than the alternative. We can even emphasize different things Jesus said. Like Jesus said this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I like that. 
Jesus also said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. There goes second Sunday in Advent. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, which one are you going with? Now, what I just did was, was lifted these verses without any context and kind of put them up to make a point. That's, that's generally not great practice, but we do this all the time. There's certain verses that we are drawn towards or, or that we emphasize. So which one are you going with? Did Jesus not come to condemn the world but to save it, or did he come to bring a sword, not peace? Do you tend to think of God as righteous or gracious? Most theology is a matter of emphasis. Different people give different weight to this scripture or that scripture, and it significantly shapes not only how we think about God, but how we behave. Author A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? What do you think that God is like? At Christmas time, we get our answer. The Gospel of John opens up with, with some of the most famous descriptions of Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning, now there's a famous biblical phrase, and I don't think that it's a coincidence, because in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, the first verse of the Bible we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Christmas and creation are connected. God created the world good and gave his creation free will, the ability to choose to accept or reject God's love. Well, what happens then when the creation, the created ones, choose to reject their creator? I think God created an interesting scenario. It's what St. Athanasius called the divine dilemma. God commanded that people abide by his command, warning them that if they disobeyed, they'd be subject to death. In On the Incarnation, a book written in the fourth century, Athanasius says this, having spoken, God should prove to be lying. That is, having legislated that the human being would die by death if he were to transgress the commandment. Yet after the transgression, if he were not to die, but rather the sentence dissolved. For God would not be true if after saying that we would die, the human being did not die. Anyone in the position of any type of leadership, and definitely as a parent, understands that if, if, if you state consequences and then don't follow through with them, you're sunk. Like my daughter's three. If we tell her, Betsy, don't do that. I mean, just yesterday, we were making some stuff for Christmas. She had a cup of sugar she was pouring into something. We don't do that every Saturday, but uh, she had a dumping in a bu bunch of sugar. Betsy, don't lick the cup. Looks right at us. Licks the cup. That's not, that's not that big of a deal on itself, but if, if our daughter looks at us after a direct instruction and does the opposite, if we don't correct her, if we don't, if we don't confront that, if we don't follow through on what we said, I got a three-year-old running the roost. I can't have it. Uh-uh. Not happening. But having created human beings with the ability to love or reject God, what good would it have been for God to create people 
only then to have them separate themselves from God. Athanasius talks about this. On the other hand, it was improper that what had once been made rational and partakers of his word should perish and once again return to non-being through corruption. It was not worthy of the goodness of God that those created by him should be corrupted through the deceit wrought by the devil upon human beings. And it was supremely improper that the workmanship of God and human beings should disappear either through their own negligence or through the deceit of demons. And so how should God respond to the sin of his creation? God is either cruel for letting them die or God is weak for letting them off the hook. So I've I've read to you kind of how St. Athanasius frames this up. Here's Adam's version of the divine dilemma. Is God a meanie or a weenie? You like that? It rhymes. I was pretty happy with that. Is God a meanie or a weenie? At Christmas time, we get the answer. Neither. We read uh, from John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 earlier, and we'll return to John 1 for our scripture today. The Gospels were the biographies of Jesus. Gospel is a word that simply means good news. And the Gospel of John opens with the beginning of the good news, the birth of Jesus in John chapter 1. This is what we read in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. There's another translation of the Bible by uh, Eugene Peterson called The Message, and I love how he put it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. At Christmas time, what we celebrate is the incarnation, God moving into the neighborhood God becoming a person. The book of John describes it as the word becoming flesh. Now what we translate into English from Greek as word comes from the Greek logos. So the, the, the word we get from Greek is logos, which means word or message. God revealed himself not just through words that were informational as if the Bible was some pamphlet that would get us into heaven, Jesus was more than an idea or just words written down. Jesus embodied God's word. Jesus is God. You've heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Jesus wasn't the messenger. He was the message. He is the logos, the word become flesh. And John says that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. This is relational language. If you read John chapter one, you you hear all the words that, that describe family, that describe relationships. The glory of the one and only son who came for the children of God for their sake. The incarnation was God's solution to the divine dilemma. The familial language continues when we read that Jesus came from the father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I believe this description of Jesus helps us understand God's solution to the divine dilemma. Through Jesus, through the Logos, because of his message, because of his life and death, God's holy standard and God's loving mercy were maintained. One of my favorite authors, William Barclay, said this of John 1.14, our verse for today. It might well be held that this is the greatest single verse in the New Testament. There's a whole lot to look at in this one little verse. What does it mean that Jesus came full of grace and truth? Well, let's dive in and define both of these things. 
grace. This comes from the Greek word haris. It looks like charis. And that's where we get the word charity. Grace has been classically defined as unmerited favor. And, and grace goes beyond just forgiveness. When, when we think about forgiveness, we think about not getting what we deserve, right? We've done something to deserve a punishment and, and we, we, are, we are forgiven uh, what, what we're deserved or, or we don't get what we're owed. But grace goes further. Grace means getting what we don't deserve, This is what we talked about last week, that grace is a free gift beyond earning or merit. When someone shows you grace, it means they are for you. Jesus is for you, full of grace. Yet in the same breath, Jesus is described as being full also of truth. Aletheia is the Greek term, and it means reality, and there's the implication that it can be depended on, that the truth can be depended on. Jesus didn't just come to tell us the truth about God and life. He came to show us what God was like and what true life is because Jesus is God. There's a cliche that goes, the truth hurts. And a lot of things Jesus said challenge and confront us. And you don't get crucified because you told everybody what they wanted to hear. People can resent the truth or they can refuse to believe the truth because of what it will mean for them. Jesus, full of grace and truth. He embodied the message that he has come to seek and save the lost and that we need to repent. Grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace. He said, come to me, all ye who are weary, and I will give you rest. And in stating the truth, he also said, Anyone who wants to be my disciple cannot do so unless they take up their cross and follow me. Grace and truth. Jesus came to show us the infinite depth of God's love and pay the price of sin that we deserve. God's solution to the divine dilemma was moving into the neighborhood, full of grace and truth. Athanasius sums it up this way. On one hand, With all dying in him, the law concerning corruption in human beings might be undone. And on the other hand, that as human beings had turned towards corruption, he might again turn them again to corruptibility and give them life from death by making the body his own and by the grace of the resurrection, banishing death from them as straw from the fire." We've been releasing daily devotions through our website and through our Facebook page. And so I'd love to invite you to join me. uh, And I hope you'll take advantage of this opportunity to join me in going beyond Sunday and kind of diving in deeper every week to, to what it means for Jesus to have become a person at Christmas. Every day you'll get a scripture, a reflection, and a prayer. So you can subscribe to a daily email list on our website. We've got the daily devotions on our website as well as our Facebook page every single day. Is God a meanie or a weenie? Neither. God came to us full of grace and truth. That's the good news of Christmas. Grace and truth. Loving people like Jesus means offering them both. There was a pastor, Chris Hodges, who wrote this. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. I mentioned earlier that if if my daughter disobeys my wife or I, we need to, now lovingly, but we need to lovingly correct her and remind her of the truth. She's not in charge, we are. 
But if all I ever do is her dad is correct her and scold her and get on her case, man, what kind of parent am I? Kids need grace and truth, and it turns out that's what all people need too. I told you earlier that most theology is a matter of emphasis. Now, you can probably guess where I lean, because I think they're listed in order, grace and truth. But to emphasize one at the expense of the other is to miss the message Jesus came to show us. When it comes to offering people grace and truth, I think there's a third ingredient that's crucial. Author and psychologist Henry Cloud talks about this. And the third ingredient is time. It's time. If we're going to love people like Jesus did, we need to offer them grace and truth over time. This is what I was missing at Judgment House. That night I had the bejesus scared out of me or into me. I'm not sure which. Either way, I wasn't willing to listen to any amount of truth from the people who put on this event because they were total strangers. I don't want to talk about this with you. You don't even know my name. Right? If we haven't banked enough time with people for them to know that we are for them, if we haven't demonstrated grace, then we may have not earned the right to talk about truth. On the other hand, we can err so much on the side of being gracious to the point where our efforts to try and be loving actually do harm and they're enabling because we lack the courage to tell someone the truth. I have a conviction that you love someone well when you tell them what's really going on. Jesus came to us full of grace and truth and loving people like Jesus means offering both. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your infinite gift of grace. A grace that isn't just a concept or, or kind of, a, of an idea or some bumper sticker slogan, but that your grace was embodied in Jesus Christ. God, we admit to you our great need of this grace. And, 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 and we rest from the struggle to try and earn it. But God, we come to you as sinners in need of your grace. And we also know that your, your truth challenges us to follow your call, to not remain in our current state, but to allow you to be at work within our lives so that over time we become more and more like Jesus. God, we thank you that you sent your son to become like us so that we could become more like him. Help us to be people who live by the truth and offer grace. No matter where we fall on the spectrum of what we emphasize, help us to embody your message, the message that Jesus came to show us. God, we thank you for the deep mystery of your word. It's hard to wrap our minds around the Trinity and that you exist as Father, Son, and Spirit, and that at Christmas time, one member of the Trinity became like us. It's, it's just a lot. And so help us to rest in your goodness. Help us to stand on your truth and receive your grace. In your son's name we pray, amen.